Oh, hello everybody in Mafra. Uh, it's good to be back with you, albeit by video. Uh, looking forward to getting back down there in person before too much longer. Um, we certainly appreciate your prayers. We've had a pretty rough week with Sal. We've had the ambulance over quite a number of times and uh, so it's been quite a hectic week. So we really do value your partnership in prayer with us and, uh, and I keep you all in my prayers too. Uh, but we're going to come to Psalm 110 today, so as we do that, let's pray and we'll ask that God helps us with this beautiful part of his word. Let's pray. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, again we come before you. We know that uh, we're sinful people. We're in constant need of your help. Uh, the old hymn says we need you every hour. Well, it's more like we need you every minute. And so we pray now that you would help us to put aside uh, the cares and concerns that uh, trouble us during the week. We pray instead that you would grant that we would uh, listen hard and read well. Uh, in your word we uh, trust that this is your word for us today and so we pray that you would speak to us words that we need to hear about your son and our saviour the lord jesus uh, and so we commit ourselves to this and we pray that you would teach us today in jesus name amen well uh, back when i'd uh, achieved a measure of financial independence and could make my own decisions uh, one of those was that i used to like to buy records lp records and my older brother introduced me to the wonder and delight of Hound Dogs Bop Shop, a specialist record shop in West Melbourne, just up from the market. And Dennis Williams was the proprietor of Hound Dogs, and he stocked an incredible range of music, pretty rare sort of things. Uh, he had it, old rock and roll stuff and doo-wop and hillbilly music and western swing. But I was particularly taken with the gospel music. He had all this very, very old, early um, African-American gospel music and white gospel music, and I loved it. And so I, uh, I wasn't as regular as some. My brother was there just about every time he had a paycheck. I went occasionally. But Dennis would uh, hold court behind the counter and people would come up to him and ask him for recommendations. And after I'd been there a few times and I, I'd started to scope out the gospel selections and I'd, occasionally I'd go up and I'd say, what do you think of this one? And he'd tell me, oh, that's great. This is good. He used to have little labels on the, um, the front covers of albums that had not only the price but his one or two word recommendation. But I used to uh, quite like these uh, these gospel compilation albums, including this one, In the Spirit, which I've got. So I remember going up to him with these at different times and I'd say, what's this one like? He'd say, it covers a lot of territory. In other words, there was a whole diversity of different artists and different sounds and different styles on there. It covers a lot of territory, is what he used to say. Well, Psalm 110 covers a lot of territory. I've called my talk today, uh, Yahweh and David's Priestly Lord, and... Um, and it concerns Yahweh, Lord in capital letters. It concerns King David, but it concerns someone else who David calls his Lord. It's a mysterious psalm. Let's have a look. Now, Psalm 110, as I said, it covers a lot of territory. It's a psalm that comes with deep Old Testament roots. If you study the footnotes in your Bible, I hope you do refer to the footnotes. I've just copied the English Standard Version's footnotes here. You'll see that throughout this psalm, there are cross-references to other places in the Old Testament, other places where themes that are developed in Psalm 110 uh, are picked up, uh, or places where Psalm 110 is used uh, to an extent. So particularly in Zechariah, you'll find a reference that is unmistakably attached to the ideas of Psalm 110. So the old, Psalm 110 has Old Testament roots, but it has New Testament fruits. And so the same cross-references in the New Testament show that Psalm 110 is prolifically used 
in the New Testament. It's probably the single most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Jesus uh, quotes it, the writer of the, the book of Hebrews quotes it, but it's referred to or alluded to in numerous other places as well that don't even get represented in these footnotes. So Psalm 110 is a pivotal passage for our understanding of the Lord Jesus and of his pla uh, place in God's plan. So the first three verses, I hope you've had a look at the Psalms. Uh, I hope you've read it all. It would be really useful if you'd also read Genesis 14 and Matthew 26, Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. That would be really useful. But let's, let's look in some detail at this Psalm. The first three verses, Yahweh speaks to David Lord. So verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's always good when we're reading the Psalms to ask who's speaking. Well, of course, King David wrote this. We, we can see that from the superscription. It says that it's a, a Psalm of David. And so great King David, the sweet Psalmist of Israel, uh, wrote many of the Psalms. And here's one that he's written. He writes about the Lord in capital letters speaking to his Lord. Now, we know that when we read Lord in capital letters, that refers to Yahweh, Israel's covenant God. But who's this other one, this Lord in small letters? This uh, should provoke our interest. It should cause us to question what's going on here. There's three very significant characters being spoken of, and we need to unpack that. Now, I'd like to think just for a moment about the use of the, the word Lord in capital letters and Lord in small letters, God and Yahweh. You'll often, I refer to the Old Testament's God as Yahweh very often. Uh, why is that? Well, there's three main words for God in the Old Testament. Uh, there's Elohim, which is the, the general name for God. It can be of the true God, but it can also be used of false gods, uh, low, low g, uh, small g gods. Uh, that's a frequently used word. Yahweh appears almost 7,000 times, and it's not a title that, like Lord. It's a name. It's God's personal name. It's the only name. Now, that's translated into English as the Lord in capital letters. So whenever you see Lord in capital letters, you've got to think Yahweh. And we'll think more about that in a moment. But then the third word that's used for God is Adonai, which is used 439 times. And it means Lord or Master. And it's a word that can be applied not just to, to God. It indicates a relationship between a superior and a lesser, a Lord and their servant. Um, and so we can read that Yahweh is the Lord of Lords or the most excellent Master. Uh, so three main words, Elohim, Yahweh, and Adonai. Now, Alec Matia has written a wonderful devotional commentary on the book of Psalms, which I thoroughly recommend. If you're looking for something to stimulate your thinking uh, as you have your daily quiet time, uh, Psalms by the Day by Alec Matia is wonderful. Uh, but in the foreword to that book, he explains why he uses the, the name Yahweh. And so he has this explanation. He says, the divine name, Yahweh, will at first sound strange in your ears, being used to the established but mistaken English convention of representing the name as the Lord. We who are of an older generation will remember the days when calling someone by their Christian name was a privilege granted but not to be presumed upon. It meant something to us when a senior friend said, please call me by my Christian name. The relationship had ripened into a new intimacy and privilege. So I remember as a boy, uh, we had frequent house guests at our place. There were people who were good friends of mum and dad, and I grew up calling them Mr. or Mrs. But some of them who I grew up to know as an adult invited me to, join, to, to call them by their first name, and it seemed a very uh, extraordinary privilege, uh, something that I, I handled, um, you know, it felt sort of awkward at the beginning. 
And that's what Matthias calling uh, talking about here. Uh, he says, we have been invited by God himself to address him by his name. So Matthias goes on. It was in Genesis 4.26 when people began to call upon their God by his personal name. So it was even more when the significance of that name was revealed to Moses in Exodus 3.15 uh, a totally false sense of reverence later said the name is too holy for us to use. And the custom was introduced of representing it as the Lord in capital letters. No, no, says Matia. He has granted us the privilege and we should learn to live in the benefit of it. There is only one name for God. God is what he is. Yahweh is who he is. Yahweh is the personal name of God which he invites his people to use. So when we read the word Yahweh, when we read the name Yahweh, when we see Lord in capital letters, we should do that quick mental translation and realise that this is the special name of God that he trusted to Moses and his people. Uh, it's a name that's used in connection with his creation of the world, with his salvation of Israel. Uh, he, he introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, it's Yahweh who commands that they paint the uh, the blood of the lamb on the on the lintels of their houses. It's Yahweh who gives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. It's Yahweh who says that he wants to live among his people in the tabernacle while they camp. And so Yahweh, the, the name itself means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. It speaks of God's self-existence uh, and his eternity. But Yahweh is code for the God of creation, the God of salvation and the God who enters into a covenant relationship with his people when they come to him for salvation. Yahweh is a rich name, and that's the name that we should think of when we see Lord in capital letters, as we do here. So Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, says to David's Lord, his Adonai, he speaks to him. Now here's a challenge. Who in the land of Israel is greater than? Than David. Now we know Yahweh is, but David's speaking here of a conversation that Yahweh has with someone that David says is his superior, his Lord, his Adonai, his master. Who's greater than David? Now this one that Yahweh is addressing, he says to him, sit at my right hand. Now to be seated at the right hand of a ruler means to be given a place of honour. So we see that in 1 Kings chapter 2 when Bathsheba uh, comes to for an audience with her son, King Solomon, and he asks her to sit at his right hand. But the right hand also was the sword hand. It was the, the, the hand that a warrior would use to wield the sword. The left hand was the use for the shield. And so we can say that symbolically, to have someone sit at your right hand uh, is a symbol of power and of honour. So when Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, he's saying, sit in the, the place of power, Sit in the place of honour. Sit at my right hand, says Yahweh, until I make your enemies your footstool. So we know that ancient kings used to sit on thrones and they would rest their feet on a footstool. And again, that's symbolic language. And it refers to battle victories. We see in Joshua 10, verse 24, that after a battle victory, when Joshua brings the armies of Israel into the land of Canaan, uh, he instructed his generals to place their feet on the necks of the conquered people. It was a sign that they had won a complete victory. Now, that you might trouble, be, be troubled by that. You might be a little squeamish and think, oh, the Bible does have some dreadfully gory things in it. But this figure of speech continues to be used even down to today. Um, I first became aware of it uh, reading football reports. And so even in this past week, uh, I discovered that there was a report of the 4-0 victory of Manchester United against the Spanish team Real Sociedad. 
And uh, the headline or the article said that it was a ruthless Manchester United that put their foot on the throat of the Spanish team. In other words, once they had them down, they made sure they stayed there and piled on a few more goals as well. Uh, we talk about a walkover. That's the same sort of thing. So Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until you find yourself so completely victorious over them that it's as though you have your foot on their throat. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. So it's the scepter that belongs to David's Lord, but it's sent out by Yahweh, the king. Now that scepter was a symbol of royal power, royal authority. And so Yahweh completes the sentence, you rule or dominate in the midst of your enemies. So David's Lord that he's writing off here, the one who is being spoken to by Yahweh, will reign with Yahweh's power, but his reign will be established, surrounded by opponents in the midst of opposition. Verse 3 says, your pe people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Now the day of your power is the day that you lead your forces, the day that your victory is first established. And these people will offer themselves freely. So this is a picture of, of a voluntary army gathering in holy garments. Back in the First World War, when uh, England uh, was a participant, uh, it was reckoned by those in charge of the English army that the, uh, the force that they had, the regular army, was too small for the coming conflict. And so they came up with the idea of, of conscripting people. And they thought that it would be an easier task to conscript volunteers for the army if they promoted the idea of volunteering with your mates, with your work colleagues, with the people from your youth club, from, with your people from your sporting groups. Uh, and so they came up with the idea of the PALS Battalion. And so there's a photo of, of, uh, of a line of hundreds of men about to embark on the train for their training, having signed up for their, for their king and their country alongside of their friends. That's the kind of idea we've got here. David's Lord, David's Adonai, is going to be accompanied in his conquest by an army of volunteers who willingly submit themselves to his rule and who go to battle on his behalf. Verse 3 continues, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. It's a beautiful verse, but no one's really entirely sure what it means. It could mean the supernatural origins of David's Lord. It could mean that. Uh, it might be a, a sign of his enduring vitality of the fact that he will always go out strengthened and, and freshly renewed. Uh, it might be that uh, the image of the Jew, who, who can stop the Jew uh, descending on the grass in the morning? Uh, no one can. It's a force of nature. It's a gentle force. It's a beautiful force. But nonetheless, it's an unstoppable and irresistible force. It may be, as it's used in 2 Samuel 17, that what we have here is a picture of David's Lord and his volunteer army proceeding to victory because no one can resist them. So we have here in these first three verses a composite picture where Yahweh promises David's Lord power, honour and total victory with a volunteer force. That's the one of whom David is writing. Well, the next section of the psalm changes the focus and Yahweh speaks now to a priestly king. So verse 4, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, that's David's Lord, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now again, that's a puzzling sentence. What is going on here? Because kings could not be priests. 
We've seen already in the Old Testament stories, uh, Saul in 1 Samuel 13 took it upon himself. He was sick of waiting for the prophet Samuel to turn up and he offered a burnt, a burnt offering sacrifice. It was not his job to do that. He lost the kingship as a result of his disobedience and his impatience. But then later on in the biblical story, we read of King Isaiah and he got a bit of ahead of himself and started to offer uh, incense in the temple. And he was struck with leprosy and had to live the rest of his days as unclean. And um, again, he was overlooked as king. So kings could not be priests. So how is it that in Psalm 110, Yahweh himself swears you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? He's speaking to David's Lord. Now, this is a strong pronouncement. It's a very strong thing for God to swear and to say he's not going to change his mind about it. Now, this looks back to Genesis 14. This is the, the, the Old Testament root of this idea of Melchizedek. You need to be familiar with this story from Genesis 14 if it's to make any sense at all. So we find there in Genesis 14 that Abraham has led a small army out to participate in a, a conflict against several other kings, and they're victorious. And so we read, after Abram's return from the defeat of Ketelioma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, and the story goes on. Now as Don Carson points out, you could remove the little piece about Melchizedek and the story would flow completely well. After his return from the defeat of Keralama, he meets the kings and the king of Sodom said to him, you could pull the Melchizedek bit out and nothing is lost from the essential story. So why has the divinely inspired author inserted this bit about Melchizedek? Because nothing is made of it here. There's been no explanation of what he does. But... God in his wisdom has, has inspired the human writer of Genesis, Moses, we believe, to include this detail because it will be picked up in Psalm 110 and fully amplified when the New Testament is written. So what does it mean that David's Lord is a priest in the order of Melchizedek? We're going to have to get back to that in a moment. Well, verses 5 to 7 combine the two roles and now we're speaking of the future glory of this priest king the priest king now has Yahweh at his right hand and so Yahweh said to the king to David's Lord sit at my right hand now this priest king has Yahweh at his right hand this speaks of the incredibly close relationship between Yahweh and this one that David addresses as Lord or Adonai the left to, to have Yahweh at your right hand meant that his shield was in front of you. He was, this is a, an offer of protection. But over these next few verses, we see the full and final complete shattering of all of the enemies in around whom uh, who are going to be around the, uh, the, the the king that David speaks of. Uh, the, 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 conquer, the conquering of them will be complete. It will be total. And the rule of David's Lord will be established and unchallenged. So the message of Psalm 110, when we boil it all down, is this. It speaks of a priest king who's greater than David, because David addresses him as Lord, and who rules with Yahweh's authority and power. 
this priest king has a, an army of willing volunteers and an enduring priestly ministry, unconstrained by human limitations. He's a priest forever. Not until the end of his life, but forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And this king priest is going to bring justice to the world by crushing all that is evil and all that is opposed to God and his people. So who can it be? Well, Jesus leaves us in no doubt at all when he refers to this very passage in Matthew chapter 22. So he's having one of his frequent debates with the Pharisees. And in the course of these, in verse 41, he asks the question, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So he's put them on the spot. They're all Bible scholars. They know what we call the Old Testament very well. And so they reply to him, the son of David. In other words, a descendant of David, because David had been promised that he would never lack a descendant on the throne. So who's the Messiah going to be? Who's the Christ? The son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus knows Psalm 110. The Pharisees know it as well. And they all know that it was written by David. So Jesus says, who's he talking about? If then David calls him Lord, Jesus continues, how is he his son? Because you see, the father is always greater than the son. That was the way that the genealogies worked out. Uh, the, the former is greater than the successor. How can David address someone as Lord when he's his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now because Jesus taught his followers to interpret the Old Testament through his lens, as though he's the fulfilment of all that God promised there, the writer of the book of Hebrews, whose name we don't know, uses the idea of Melchizedek frequently across the scope of Hebrews 5 to 7. Now when you put some of these things together, we learn these facts about Melchizedek that we don't see made explicit in the Genesis 14 account and that aren't there in the Psalm 110 account. But the writer of Hebrews, writing with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains the significance of what it means that there will be this priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So in Hebrews 7 verse 2, we read that his name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. In uh, 7 verse 2, we also read that he was the king of Salem. Now, Salem means peace. It's like the word shalom. Um, uh, but it's the same place as Jerusalem, which is the city of peace. So he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. We read in Hebrews 7 verse 3 that he had no genealogy. Every other important person we read of in Genesis has a, a father and a mother, a genealogy that shows how they connect to the big picture of what God's doing with the people. But there's no genealogy recorded for Melchizedek. He just turns up and then he disappears. So this is seen as being symbolic of someone without a beginning or an ending and that's Jesus. Jesus has always been. There was a time when he was born as a human, but from eternity has, he has been God the Son, the Word who became flesh. And so because of that, the writer to the Hebrew says, Melchizedek is the perfect model of what Jesus would become, a priest whose career would continue forever. Verses 4 to 10 of Hebrews 7 tell us that Melchizedek, of course, was greater than Abraham, the very father of the Jewish people. 
because he received tithes from Abraham and he blessed Abraham and the greater blesses the, the lesser. So he says Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. So Hebrews 5 to 7, the composite message there shows us that Jesus is a priest of a different kind. He's not descended from Aaron. He's not one of the Aaronic priesthood. And so by virtue of the fact that he's is an everlasting priesthood, uh, it's indestructible, says the writer to the Hebrews. It's a, and because of that, he can bring in a better covenant and a permanent priesthood, which means that he is constantly doing the work of a priest, going between people and God, interceding for them. James Montgomery wrote a lovely Christian hymn, a very famous Christian hymn, justly famous, uh, called Hail to the Lord's Anointed. Hail to the Lord's Anointed, great David's greater son. And that's who we see pictured in Psalm 110. Great David, the greatest king Israel ever had, but he had an even greater son. And in the spirit, he speaks of him. Psalm 110, as we saw, it has deep Old Testament roots, but it has wonderful New Testament fruit. It's quoted or it's referred to or alluded to over and over again in the New Testament as the New Testament writers sought to make sense of the answers to the questions of where is Jesus now? What's he doing? And how is that useful to us? All of the language of the glorification and the current reign of the Lord Jesus is based on terms that we find in Psalm 110. So if we speak of Jesus being ascended to to heaven and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high that's language from psalm 110 but what use is that to us is it just a, an interesting concept or is there something more more beneficial to us within it well for, to just use two examples just two of, of the many that you could find in romans chapter 8 a, a wonderful pivotal passage just a glorious passage that describes uh, the godhead father son and holy spirit and our place in God's purposes and, and our privileges within them. Um, Romans 8, 34 to 35 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. That's Psalm 110 language. But what's he doing at the right hand of God? Well, he's reigning, of course, but he's interceding for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? The whole point, says Paul, is that Jesus from this position of power and this position of honour is behaving not just as a king but as a priest in interceding. He's praying for us, which means that when you pray, you're adding your prayers to the prayers that Jesus is already praying on your behalf. Now, what would Jesus be praying for you? He's praying that nothing will separate you from the love of God. Do you ever wonder if your prayers are effective? I do. I often wonder if my prayers even being prayed properly. We have this incredible assurance in, in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, but here we read that the Son of God, Jesus himself, is interceding for us in a priestly way, fulfilling that Melchizedekian-like priesthood which will last forever. Jesus prays that you will be kept, and so no one can condemn you. No harm can befall you that will separate you from the love of God. What an assurance that is in a world where we're surrounded by forces that are trying to drag us away, that are trying to corrupt us and trip us up, trying to stop us from following the Lord Jesus at all. Jesus is seated at God's right hand as the eternal priest praying for you. But 1 Corinthians 15 speaks in language that shows us that Jesus has a continuing kingship. 
First Corinthians 15 is where Paul explains the wonder of Jesus' resurrection and how central it is to our gospel hope. First Corinthians 15 verses 20 to 27, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Skip a bit. And then comes the end, says Paul, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's Psalm 110. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Where is Jesus? He's seated at God's right hand. What's he doing? Interceding for us and reigning over the universe until that time that he returns to earth to establish God's eternal kingdom, God's unchallengeable kingdom, where Jesus will reign having at last put an end to humanity's number one enemy, death. What's the worst that can happen? You'll die. But even death will be defeated finally because of Jesus' resurrection to eternal life. So there's great benefit to be had from us enjoying a relationship with Jesus who is a priest and a king. As a priest, he intercedes for us. He's the perfect go-between between corrupt human beings because he was a perfect human being. He understands our weakness and he can take our weaknesses and represent them to our Father in heaven. But as well as that, he's a king, a king who will reign one day in perfect and unchallengeable power and authority to vanquish all opposition to God and all that causes grief to God's people. What a wonderful combination. Jesus, our priest king. And so my question for you today and my challenge indeed is, have you offered yourself to him freely in the day of his power? Because we're living in the day of salvation and the time to offer ourselves as willing conscripts to his army, volunteer uh, members of, of, of his conquering brigade, that the time is now and it must not be delayed because one day he will return and by then the time for making that decision will have passed. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, what a wonderful word you've given to us in Psalm 110. We thank you for your servant David, who, who wrote in the inspiration of the spirit of a king greater even than him, who, who combined uh, perfectly priesthood and, and kingly authority. We thank you that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us, that his prayers are, are before you night and day. Uh, praying that we will be kept from the power of the evil one, praying that we will be sanctified by your word of truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, and we thank you for Jesus, our reigning and returning king. And so we ask that you would grant that we would be willing conscripts into his army, part of a volunteer force committed to serving him in this, the day of his power. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pledge ourselves to this and ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit to enable it to be the case in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.